0: First Kings chapter 18 is where we're at this morning. I'm going to, I'm just going to read sort of the introduction of our, our passage here before we dive in. So it's first Kings chapter 18. This is what it says. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. In your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Father, this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. That you would turn our hearts back to you today. That you in this time would do something that only you can do, God. That you would glorify yourself, make your presence known, cause us to see once again, or maybe for the first time, that you are the one true God and you are worthy of our lives. We ask you to do this uh, for your sake here in this city and overall this whole world. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you and I make choices in our lives all the time. Uh, it's actually really hard to nail down, but it's believed that you make 35,000 conscious decisions every single day. You're thinking, no wonder I'm exhausted, right? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. And there are certain things in life you just have to make a choice on, even though it often feels easier sometimes to not make a choice. Um, For me, uh, this is no more uh, true than when I'm choosing a meal at a restaurant when I've never been to that restaurant before. You know, uh, I get too involved in the socializing, that kind of thing, and then the, the waiter or waitress inevitably comes up to the table and says, are you guys ready? I know what my answer is. And it always seems like, in unison, the rest of the table says, we are. And I go, okay, well, start with them. Work your way around. I'll make a decision by the time you get to me. And I know in that moment, it is go time, right? It is go time. I have to make a decision, you know? And so it comes to me. I still don't know what I want, and so I just throw out an answer. It's usually very unhealthy and bad for me, and I regret the decision. But nonetheless, I have to make a decision. And if I didn't make a decision, that in and of itself would be a decision, wouldn't it? I would be choosing not to eat. Uh, You see, uh, even William James, a philosopher in the late 1800s, said this. He says, when you have to make a choice and you don't make it, that in itself is a choice. Uh, We know this, and God knows this, and his people know this, yet they were living in the illusion that by not making a choice, they could avoid God altogether and they could keep living as they wanted to. Uh, this, is, this is where a lot of people are, I think, with God. If I'm being honest, I've found myself in these places too. You're here this morning and you think, well, I haven't rejected God per se, but you haven't really, for lack of a better word, chosen him either. You know, We, we foolishly think that by not making a decision to follow after God, that we aren't making a decision, yet we are we are making a decision. In the story that we're looking at this morning, you can think of it this way. The the waitress is going around the table, and it's go time. It's go time. And the question that's dominating the passage is, who is going to be your God? Who's going to be your God? Uh, The people of Israel are limping fence riders, you could say. It it shouldn't come as a surprise because their king is That same thing. He's a limping fence rider um, in many ways. On the one hand, he's kind of a worshiper of Yahweh. Um, He gave his kids Yahweh esque sort of names. One of his kids' names means owned by Jehovah. One of his other kids' names means uh, Jehovah is exalted. And this isn't just because he probably liked the sound of the names, this meant something. But on the other hand, he chooses for his wife to be blunt, kind of the the wicked witch of the West, really, you know, Jezebel, who's fully committed to Baal, the Canaanite god of the storm, and she has a lot of God's prophets killed, and she's trying to make Baal worship the state religion, and Ahab won't do anything about it. And God here in this passage is basically coming to people, and He's coming to us, and He's saying, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Just to see how this story unfolds, there's a lot to cover. Uh, we see this challenge that's posed at the end of what I just read, verses 1 through 21. We see this epic showdown on Mount Carmel in 22 through 38, and then this, this response. And I think in this response, we see what our response should be. So, first, we're looking at this challenge that's posed in verses 1 through 21. In these opening verses, which I, I didn't read, in these opening verses, there's this contrast that's already coming into view in verses 3 through 6. We see the contrast. It's between this guy, Obadiah, and King Ahab. Ahab wants to save donkeys and mules. So we're on a hunt for some grass. And Obadiah is in the business of saving prophets. So it's a very stark contrast here. And then it's almost emphasized by the language in verse 6, because you see Ahab goes in one direction by himself, and you see Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Then Elijah appears to Obadiah, and you have basically this this long dialogue of Obadiah basically saying, I'm going to die if I do what you're asking me to do. And Elijah is asking him to go and tell King Ahab that Elijah wants to meet with him. And Obadiah essentially thinks, if I go and if I do that, God's going to whisk you off somewhere and I won't be able to deliver you and then I'm going to die because King Ahab wants you to die. But he ends up in the end trusting in Elijah's word because Elijah says to him in verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Right? So he finally meets with him, meets with Ahab, Elijah does. And after three and a half years of searching for him, trying to kill him, which you discover that in verse 17, Ahab asks only one question to Elijah, and what is it? We read it. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He thinks that Elijah is the reason that this famine is happening. And so he calls him this troubler. He thinks Elijah is the problem because Elijah stood up in verse 1 of chapter 17 that we saw last week, and he says, there's no longer going to be rain in this land. Three and a half years, right? There hasn't been rain. And so he's sitting here saying, you're the problem, Elijah. But Elijah responds in verse 18 saying, I haven't troubled Israel. You have. It's because you've abandoned God. You haven't obeyed him. You've led people astray. So Ahab thinks Elijah's the troubler, But Elijah says that Ahab is the troubler. So who's the troubler? Who's in the wrong? Elijah has an idea. He has an idea. He asks for all of Israel to gather at Mount Carmel, literally everyone. And once everyone has gathered, Elijah does what? He comes near to all the people, and he has a challenge for them. What's the challenge? He wants to draw a line in the wet cement, basically, And when you read this challenge, I almost feel like you should hear like a drum beating in the background or something. That's just a really like epic moment. I wish we could, you know, get somebody on drums up here just for a second. But uh, what does he say? Verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He tells them to follow Baal if they think he's God. And how does he equate what they're doing? He uses this really vivid word, limping. Limping. Man, I remember when I was in middle school, I was playing out at my great-grandmother's house. She has this creek. I was jumping across the creek as usual. It's a normal, hot summer day. And I, I fell, and I hit my knee on a really sharp rock. And it just, like, split open, right? And I had to get seven stitches, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was in the worst place possible. It was on my knee, so for two months, as a middle schooler, which is like the worst year to ever let happen in your life, school was starting, football season was starting, I couldn't play, and I could not bend my leg. For two months, I had to walk around with a limp without bending my leg. Try to imagine a middle schooler trying to go down the stairs, like you don't look very cool when you have a limp like that walking around school, and in middle school, that's all I wanted to be was cool, you know? So I had this horrible limp for two months, and then I finally got the stitches off, and I'm like, great, I can start... Running around again, I can start acting normal, but then I got the stitches out, and lo and behold, I gotten so used to not bending my knee, I still had a limp. I forgot how to walk. I had to walk around trying to bend my knee, just looking strange, to be honest with you, because I had forgotten how to walk. I had this limp, right? I I was able to walk. I was able to move. I, I wasn't paralyzed, but my limping revealed that there was something wrong. I, I wasn't at full strength. That's to be clear, right? The word limp is a really vivid word. It communicates something. What does it communicate? It communicates half-heartedness. If you aren't limping, your leg is, is, is at full strength, right? If your leg is, is paralyzed, you aren't moving at all. If you're limping, something's wrong, but you're kind of in the middle, you know? You aren't doing nothing, but you're not running, that's for sure, Elijah asks a straightforward question, and what's the answer? It's a pretty clear question. Hey, who are you going to follow? Who's God? What's the answer? Silence. You see that in verse 21, right? Which is actually a response, isn't it? This is a lot like us. I don't want to choose. I don't want to pick. But in life, you make choices by your silence. The challenge here is to decide Who is God? And then act on that decision. The people limp along without conviction, wanting to follow half heartedly one God and then the other God. And you and I might be wondering right now as we look at something like this, and we we wonder why this is even a hard question. We're like, I don't care about Baal. This would be an easy decision for me. You know, I'm not going to follow Baal, I'm going to follow God. But Baal worship would have been very appealing. And I think you might resonate with how it would be appealing in a way. I mean, first, it carried the appeal of royal sanction if you worshiped Baal because it was sort of the powerful religion that spread across the whole land. And so, if you aligned yourself with Baal, you were aligning yourself with the powers to be. That's a pretty persuasive argument. Secondly, Baal worship offered this appeal to relevance. It was an ability to touch felt needs. That's what it offered you. What did they claim to be? for Baal to do. Baal was the god of the storm. He was the fertility god who gave people soil and and blessings of fruitfulness. He sent storms. He gave grain. He gave oil. He gave wine. I mean, what could be more relevant for an anxious farmer, right, who's worried about his cattle or something like that? When, When Baal was on his game, like, life was really good. And then last, though, too, Baal provided an appeal to sensuality, you had sexual rights built into the liturgy. Baal allowed you, essentially, to serve him with all your glands. Right? That's the appeal. You could put it this way. If you had an itch, Baal had a God who would at least promise to scratch it. Right? it was a very powerful thing. And although you and I might not have Baals in our home or all over Gresham or something like that, we read this narrative and we are confronted with how we have, if you think about it, We have as many bales often in our own hearts, don't we, as Jezebel was trying to put in Israel. Guys, this is not just a battle for your mind. This is a battle for your heart. And so God is is coming to you this morning, and he's saying, go all in. Do you have a pantheon of gods in your heart, and you've grown comfortable and fine with their presence, as if Jesus it's just one of many gods in your heart. And I know you probably know the right answer to that, but what's the real answer? What's the real answer? Do we use God like He is our waiter at a restaurant? We ignore Him. I mean, we don't want Him to come and sit down and eat with us, right? That would be really awkward, wouldn't it? Right? We, we want to call Him over when we need Him for us to get us something. And depending on how well He does, we might give Him a good tip or something like that, right? I mean, how do we as people get to these points and these places in our lives? How did Israel get to this point? Well, it wasn't overnight. They've been making 35,000 conscious decisions a day, right? They've worshipped their way into this place of indifference. And Elijah's saying, Worship your way out of it, one way or the other. Decide how long we go limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Elijah says, Look, I mean, think about this. Think about what he's saying. Look, If Baal is God, serve him. Do it. Think about that. That's an intense statement, isn't it? He's pushing them to their logical end. If Elijah were here this morning, he might say to us something like, if if money is your God, not just amoral and useful for things kind of idea, But if it has power over you, if money is your God, serve it with all your heart. Get all you can. If you have to cheat, do it. If it's the ultimate good, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your integrity. Don't give any of it away. Don't do it. If the approval of people is your God, then try to please everybody. Just sell out. Do whatever you have to do to earn their approval, manipulate people. Constantly change who you are depending on who you're around. Say whatever you want to say or you think people want you to say or do whatever you want to do or what people want you to do, but you got to keep doing it. They might reject you. If beauty is your God, serve it, obsess over it, spend all your time and your money and your thoughts on improving how you look. If romance is your God, then go anywhere to find it. Just go for it. Leave your marriage if you must. You feel like getting divorced? Do it. It's not worth it, right? Go all the way. Forget about the responsibility that you have to your kids. Go and find good romance. Who cares if that person's married to somebody else, right? If that's what you want, go for it. If pleasure is your God, serve it. Make all of your fantasies come true. Give yourself away to whomever you want, whenever you want. Consume whatever you can to make yourself feel good. You think you'll be happy then? Will you be fulfilled? Then do it. I mean, you know this isn't right. You feel the awkward pushback right now. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this guy, right? He's our pastor, you know? I'm just trying to push it to the logical end. That's what Elijah's doing. He's looking at the sea of God's people. And he's saying, decide. If Baal is God, follow him. Stop limping. Stop it. Stop towing the line. That's the challenge. Is, is, it, is that who you really want to be your God? He's got an idea. In verses 22 to 24, he shows us what it is. He says, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered. Sounds like a good idea. It's well spoken. So the stakes are made. It's one man versus 450. Present two bowls. All the people get to pick out the two bowls. Present the two bowls. Elijah says, I'll let you have first pick. The 450 get to look at the two bowls and pick the one they want, right? That's quite an advantage. It's like if you present a plate of cookies to kids, what are they going to do? They're not just going to blindly grab one, are they? They're going to look, examine, right? They're going to They're going to take the cookie, and and so you never want to be the last one to pick the cookie off the plate, do you? You want to be the first one, right? Same with the bull. That's exactly the idea here, right? Prepare the bull as a sacrifice. Put it on the altar. We're going to call it to God. No one's going to light a flame at all. We're going to see who lights up the altar. Whoever does, that person's God, right? Elijah challenges them to a showdown, and he says, I'm giving you guys home field advantage, right? This is on the mountain where Baal is worshipped, it used to be where Yahweh was, but that altar has been thrown down. Okay, but now this is this is home field advantage right here. It's also Baal's specialty. Wow, right? I mean, to light up an altar that would probably, for a god of the storm, he could send a, a bolt of lightning or something during a three and a half year drought. That would give a spark, wouldn't it? it would do something. All right, so this is quite the advantage. It's home turf. It's Baal's specialty. It's 450 to one. So The prophets of Baal, verse 25, what do they do? Elijah said, to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull. Prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation which is like evening. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then it's added, no one paid attention. Right, so they prepare their bowl from morning till lunch. They're crying out. There's no voice. There's no response. The silence of Baal seems as deafening as this, the people's silence to Elijah's question. Isn't it? What do they do? They limp around the altar that they've made. That's definitely meant for you to connect that to what Elijah says they're doing in the question he poses for them. At lunchtime, Elijah mocks them, right? Mocking can definitely have a place. Here's a good one. You know, he's saying, hey, you should cry louder. Maybe you're being too quiet, you know? You should, you should yell louder. Maybe he's sleeping, you know? You got to wake him up. You also know, so yell a little bit louder, you know? Or maybe he's on vacation. That wouldn't be good, right? Or maybe he's going to the bathroom, right? Maybe he's really deep in thought and you got to get him out of his little meditative trance or something like that. In his mocking, Elijah's getting a point across because when you make a God into the image of man, there is nothing more natural than to assume human qualities of that God. Well, if I made him, maybe he needs to sleep like I do. He's revealing how this God is not only made up. He's not real. He's not real. They try harder. They cry louder. They cut themselves, which was their practice, till their blood was gushing out of them. This is like a rated R movie, okay? This is intense. They are, they're really trying hard. They're sacrificing themselves. Surely, Baal, in a moment of compassion... Would see what they're doing and do something, but there's no voice. No one answered, and it's just, you know, like the knockout punch here. No one's even paying attention. Not even. It's not even that this incapable of doing something. He's not even watching, is what it says. Guys, the, the, this kingdom is in drought. They worshipped the weather god. Drought equals dryness. Dryness equals easy fire, okay? Nothing. Nothing. Just, just think about what this so-called God is doing, asking of His people to do. Look at the progression. They, they call out, they're, they're performing, it climaxes in them cutting themselves. This God is requiring a whole lot of sacrifice from them. He's making them do so much in order to get something in return. And this God is is taking a lot and and giving nothing in return. You see this? I mean, We might not be dancing around an altar this morning. We might not be cutting ourselves, trying to get whatever our God's is, attention or something. But this is exactly what false gods do to us, isn't it? They make us dance for them. They ultimately promise us life in return. We have to sacrifice. We have to perform. A false god will, will take and take and take and take and take, but it always holds out the carrot a little bit farther. and says, if you go a little bit more, you'll finally be fulfilled. But it never is that, right? It keeps taking and taking and taking. It takes you way further than you ever wanted to go. You have to work. You have to dance. You have to sacrifice. You have to keep it up. I mean, Tim Keller said, how, how do you know where there are idols? Look for the dancing. Look for the slashing. I would add, look for the yelling, for the crying out. Elijah hasn't gone yet, and this God doesn't make him dance or cut himself. Look in verse 30. Elijah said to the people, come near, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And when the stones he built an altar, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, just like evening again, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah says, Come close. He repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. If the altar needed to be repaired, I would think that Elijah's comment that they were limping between two gods is a pretty generous statement. Elijah uses 12 stones to rebuild the altar, symbolizing the restoration of Israel. The narrator wants you to know that this altar symbolizes Israel. He wants you to know that. He digs a huge trench around the altar in verse 32. He has people pour water all over the bowl, the wood, the altar. A second time, third time, there's so much water, the trench is filled up. He's not just showing off, you guys. It's not what he's doing. He's making sure that the people know that if this altar gets lit up, it's not because it's fire season. It's because God did it. He wants them to know. This would have to be an act of God. God is heightening his disadvantage. I mean, they already have home field advantages. This is already the specialty of Baal. It's 450 to 1. He's continuing to heighten the disadvantage. But God's power and God's mercy has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. This Elijah comes near and he prays. He doesn't limp, he's not parading around. He's not crying aloud. He's not cutting himself. He prays. That's all he does. And Elijah's prayer is for the fame, it's for the honor, it's for the renown of God. He cares about God's glory. He wants God to be worshiped because God is the true God. This is the moment. If God doesn't show up, Elijah would have to expect that he would have to be killed. He's been headhunted, right? Yahweh showing up was life and death for him, but more than that, life and death for Israel, because what does it say in verse 37? Answer me, that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This prayer is a plea for the mercy and kindness of God to bring back his people. Do you see this? God is the one who turns hearts. The challenge is for the people to decide who's going to be their God, yet the prayer is that God would turn the people's hearts back. Do you see this? Them deciding to follow Jesus, deciding to follow God, would be an act of God's initiating mercy. Elijah prays, fire falls. And notice the totality of the language. The sacrifices burn up, the wood is consumed, but the stones, the stones are consumed... You ever seen that before? The dust is gone? Like, what does that even mean? Right? The water is licked up in the trench. This is like total language, you know? Like, if I feed my kids dinner every night, it's like they're taking their bowls to the sink, and I'm like, are you finished with your meal? And they're like, yeah. And I look in, I'm like, there's still a few bites left, you know? And they're like, okay. And they go back and they eat a few more bites and they try to go to the sink. And I'm like, are, is your bowl, are you done? And the, yes, I'm done. I look, oh, you still got a couple bites left. This is going back and forth, right? I feed them ice cream. I've never asked that question before, right? They, they lick the bowl, right? I, I've often even looked at a bowl, is this clean? You know, I thought we put ice cream in. Did you do the dishes? You know, licking is, is total language, isn't it? That's, that's what you're meant to see here. Guys, you look over and Baal's altar is still there. The bull is on the top. The wood is there. Don't you see it? The prophets are limping around. It's a mess. You can imagine that they're probably exhausted. They've been doing this all day, they're maybe even going hoarse. But you look at Elijah's God's altar, it's gone. Here's the contrast. Therefore, here's the exercise. God meets your God head on this morning, like the pantheon in your heart. And he says, Fill in the blank. I'm better. I'm God. That God's not even real. But I am. Who's causing you to limp? What's the response? Verse 39 And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized him. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab... Notice the language contrasting here. It's interesting. Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the Mount of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now. Look toward the sea. And he went up, and he looked, and he said, there is nothing. He said, go again. Go up seven times At the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran. He didn't limp. ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So the famine, the drought is over. What was promised in verse 1 of 17 has come to an end. Something happened on Mount Carmel that we need to know. Right? What's the response? Well, first it's, it's worship, right? People fall on their faces. They chant, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah's name literally means My God is the Lord. They're like chanting Elijah's name, but they're not worshiping Elijah. They're worshiping God. Elijah prays, what? Let them know you are God, that you're not an idea. You know, that you're not just a force, that you're not a religion, that you're not just a symbol or something, that you are the fire-sending God, that you are the living God who destroys idolatry In the midst of glorifying his name, he's offering this divine invitation to come back, to come home, to stop meddling and having a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but to come home. And so when the people cry out to God, if the prayer is that God would turn their hearts back, when the people cry out to God, God did that. He didn't just rule the weather, God rules their hearts. We read in verse 40, That God sustains his prophets, doesn't let them die, but Baal, he can't protect his. Verse 40 is a hard one, isn't it? This is where many of us Oregonian Christians kind of sigh. Like, oh man, we had such a wonderful time on Mount Carmel. You know? And now Elijah goes and spoils it all. Here we go, wading through the gore of another Moral problem in the Old Testament. The savage Old Testament, you know? But this wasn't an act of personal revenge from Elijah. As if he's mad. Like, I had to eat bread and water. I had to be fed by ravens because, you know, he's not mad. This is capital punishment in line with their law. I mean, Israel was a theocracy. There wasn't a separation of church and state. Elijah was carrying out their constitution. You see places like Deuteronomy 13 that says, Those who woo Israel to worship another god forfeit their lives. We're confronted here, guys, with with a thought when we read something like this, and especially if we're bothered by it. The question comes to my mind as it did this week: Do I really think that I'm kinder than God? Do I really think that God is severe? but his severity doesn't condemn him and his severity doesn't condemn Elijah. His severity condemns us. How? Well, condemns me when I read verse 40 and I don't get it. When I read verse 40 and I don't think rejecting the living God is that big of a deal. When, when I read something like this and I see people leading others away from the living God and thinking, that's fine, you can just worship whoever you want live in a pluralistic society, it's not that big of a deal. Guys, if you have cancer, you need surgery, right? Something. You don't need a breath mint. The problem is not God's lack of refinement, but our lack of holiness. It's our lack of having the shared heart with God. That's the problem. This nasty episode in the Kishon Valley shows us that I have little horror over my sin. See, the God of this moment here is is the God that's really reigning over this room this morning. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. We must see this. And so before we go thinking that God is savage and and lacking in mercy, look at this. Look where the fire comes down. Look at it. Where does it come down? The, The altar. In the Old Testament, when fire comes down, that was bad news, okay? This was a sign of judgment. This wasn't a sign like, I'm going to go warm myself, maybe make some s'mores or something like that. That wasn't what fire coming down from heaven was uh, causing you to want to do, okay? When fire fell, it meant judgment. So you'd think that when the fire fell, it wouldn't have come to the altar. The altar wasn't limping, you know? It would have fallen on the limping people. But it fell on the altar, didn't it? Do you remember what was consumed? That was so jarring to us was those 12 stones, wasn't it? That symbolized Israel. But the fire doesn't fall on the people. It falls on the stones that represent the people. We get a very illuminating picture, I think, of what's going on here in Luke 9 when Jesus and His disciples, they're in Samaria, which is essentially where Elijah is, and they're rejected. They reject Jesus and His ministry in Samaria. And the disciples have this great idea. They say, hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these people that just rejected you? Just like Elijah. Do you want us to do that? Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah just to show them, to really prove to them, you are the one true God? And Jesus goes, that's an interesting thought. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he just rebukes them. He's like, you don't get it. You don't understand the story of 1 Kings 18, do you? They misinterpreted it. Jesus isn't just the true and better Elijah, you guys. In Luke 19, he's he's telling us he's the true and better Israel. That's why he says you don't get it. You see, Jesus, the, the true and better Israel, came near to you. He came near to all of us. And he never limped. He wholeheartedly and devotedly obeyed the Father... He never bowed his knee to a false god, even when he was tempted to do so in the wilderness. Yet he who knew no idolatry, who knew no sin, became sin, and the fire of God's judgment fell from heaven, and he consumed every last drop. I mean, just imagine standing at the base of the Hoover Dam, right? It'd be pretty epic. I don't know if you've ever been there before. You're amazed by it. But then let's just say you start noticing a crack that forms at the bottom, and it's working its way towards the top. And then before you can even react, untold amounts of water burst through the dam, and they're just rushing like a 500-foot wall of water towards you, right? Death is imminent, isn't it? Death would be imminent, right? But suddenly, right before it comes to you, the ground in front of you splits open and swallows up every single drop of water, and not one touches you. Imagine that. Imagine that. Guys, when Jesus died on the cross, he stood between us and the rushing river of God's righteous wrath. And he swallowed up every ounce into himself so that not a drop. Remains for you and me. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs, licked it, turned it over, and says, it's finished. See, Jesus isn't Elijah calling down fire. He's the sacrifice that crawled up onto the cross to receive the fire of God's judgment. This is so different, because every other God that is filling your heart this week that you're struggling with, maybe. Every other God says, dance for me, slash yourself. There is only one God who was slashed for you, though. Every other God will make your blood run, but only the true God bleeds for you. See, the true God does not take, 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 and say just a little bit more and then you'll finally be fulfilled. Nope, he gives, he gives, he gives, and I go, I don't deserve you giving, but I do deserve you taking from me. You might be saying, cool, Josh, if I saw a fire fall from the sky that day, I'd worship too. But guys, the greatest miracle is not fire falling from heaven, but it's God's fire falling on Jesus. And Him rising from the ashes of death and walking out of the grave and then holding out to you forgiveness. It really is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. See, Ahab thought Elijah was the troubler, but he fundamentally misunderstood the source of his problem. It was him. We're running low on time here, but what happens? It rains. God sends rain. It's, it's, it's only now that everyone will know that the rain, when it returned, it wasn't because of Baal. It was because of God. And then you see the final response. It's a picture of what a life-responsive worship looks like. What is it? Running. There's a random detail here that Elijah outran Ahab's horse, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Don't miss the contrast again, right? The pictures just show you the opposite of limping. He's running fast. Fast like really fast. See, running is a constant reference in the Bible to what people experience when they follow Him. And if you're anything like me, I don't like that because I hate running, you know? When I run, it feels like I'm carrying a load of bricks on my back. But we all get the idea of running, right? You can't run if you're being, like, bogged down. You can't run if you're limping. If you're running, that means you're free. Running... Is freedom in a singular direction. That's what running is. How do I run? I sum up by saying Hebrews 12 tells us, What? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So you don't limp. And do what? Let us run with endurance, the race. That is set before us. How do I run? I look to Jesus. The author of my faith. He wrote it. He created it. He's the founder of it. He's also the perfecter of my faith. Isn't he? Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the fire that fell from heaven. Despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand. of the throne of God. Guys. Elijah is not going to allow us to attend a God contest this morning just so that we can watch and then say, well, now we know that God is the true God and this other God is not. Um, so what do you want to eat for lunch today? What movie do you want to go to now? See, the, the real God stood up on Mount Carmel that day. But the real God has also come down. And he calls us to him. And as Elijah drew near to the people and said, stop limping, decide. Jesus draws near to you this morning. And he says, stop limping. Go all in. Go all in. Let's all rise to our feet as we respond. Father, this morning I do pray that you would turn our hearts back to you and that we would stop limping and that you would free us to run.